Hello out there, film snobs. This is filmsnobs.com, your source for how to be a better film snob. I am co-creator and contributor James Owen, coming to you live on tape from my undisclosed location here in Missouri. Uh, I have a very special guest today. I uh, got an opportunity to watch a documentary that will be airing on your local PBS station. Uh, check your local listings for that. Or I believe you can check it out on PBS.com on their streaming service. Uh, a documentary called Inside High Noon, which is a documentary which talks about not only the making of that uh, very classic piece of film, but also talking about some of the politics that went around the production of it, which is something I did not know a whole lot about. So I was very excited to learn about that. We have the the filmmaker here, John Mulholland. Hey, John, how are you? Good, thanks, James. How are you? I'm great. Um, yeah, so I got a chance to watch this. Uh, it's a really entertaining documentary. It's uh, uh, narrated by Matthew Rise. Is that how you say his name? Uh, Rees, I think. Rees, yeah. It's a, <laughs> I, that's my hick accent coming out on me here. Uh, I, I didn't know either. Okay, but you all would know him from being on the Americans and from the Perry Mason reboot that's on that's been on HBO the past couple of years. Very talented actor, very good uh, voice for um, for voiceovers, as it turns out. Also uh, includes interviews not only with a lot of people that are uh, kind of associated with the film and their family. Also, former President Bill Clinton is interviewed on this film. Um so it kind of you you uh, you mention you name you you refer to yourself as a film historian uh, in in the material for this uh, for this documentary. I mean, how does one go about becoming a film historian, or how did you become a film historian? I guess I should ask. Someone I know, a colleague, labeled me as film historian, and basically that <laughs> that's that's what it is. I think that a film historian, someone who's just sat in the dark and watched an awful lot of movies, right? I mean, other than that, I, the idea that film is taught uh, and you become a film historian by right. taking courses is strange to me because it would seem to me you could accomplish the same thing by just watching them yourself. I don't mean to be cynical or sure. snarky, but and I'm not talking about film school where you right. learn. But there are courses here in New York you can go and come out of it being called a film historian or something. And just bizarre to me because I have no idea what it means. I yeah. didn't tag myself with that. So I don't mean to start this off on a negative. Oh, no. <laughs> that helps me understand it. Uh, <laughs> but, I, you know, it's, it, you know, because you, you, you're, you're talking about this film. Uh, High Noon came out uh, 70 years ago. Um, I mean, you know, for me, and I, I try to read some history, I think inter I, I, I like watching movies too. I don't think of myself as a film historian. I like to, I like to think about context of movies quite a bit, which I think are important, the time and place where they're made, uh, which seems like that might have some historical elements to it. I guess I wonder how far removed do you have to be from when a film came out for you to consider it history? Do you feel like a lot of time has to go by before you can really dive into that? Certainly enough time where the emotions about the era are not driving you. Mm -hmm. I think it would be difficult to make something about the 2016 election, a, a yeah. documentary. Uh, I think that depending on whomever, whichever side you're on, it, 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 we're too close. Right. So, uh, I think that there has to be some wall allows for to climb over. Yeah, that will allow for that objectivity. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. Yeah. Even though I find myself, even though I had no knowledge of anything back then, 
anti-blacklist. So yeah. even though I'm so-called objective, there's a side of me that has picked a side <laughs> when I approach this. It is it is hard. I mean, especially in in historically speaking, to uh, take you know to, to look at both do a both sidesism of <laughs> HUAC and and blacklisting, uh, which which kind of because I mean so so when looking at because I think that's important to talk here about High Noon and and the film and its history. Um, so you know. When did you start becoming interested in this film, or at least not becoming interested in it, but interested in it as a subject for you to to dive deeper into? Well, I've always just really loved the movie. I think it's just a spectacular film. But one of the things that interested me from the opening, my opening salvo with it, my father took me to it, uh-huh. and that is... I had never seen my concept of masculinity did not allow for what Gary Cooper does in this movie, which is he's scared and he's frightened and he puts his head down on the desk and actually cries. And for a man to do that, and he wasn't crying because he lost a loved one or something. He was crying because he was afraid and he he knew he was going to die. And that just was not something I had ever seen on a movie screen before. And I remember just being very struck by it. And I'm not sure I dwelt on it at that age, but it stayed with me. Sure. Then the older I got and the more uh, I became aware of High Noon and its layers, I I, uh, I, I just uh, eventually thought, you know, there's something in this worth uh, exploring in a documentary. Yeah. And, and when did you, I mean, is that when you started noticing or started like kind of diving into its connection to the Hollywood blacklist and to what was going on with the house on American activities uh, committee in Washington, DC. Is that, or did you kind of, were you aware of that before you started diving into the high noon? I I really wasn't aware of it uh, uh, specifically. I was vaguely aware that perhaps high noon might've been, but I didn't know anything about it until I started researching it and realized that, it's it's a movie that almost didn't get made because of the blacklist. Right. Yeah, I had no idea. And I don't want to spoil anything for anybody who hasn't seen the documentary. You should go watch the documentary. I had no idea how, you know, how interlayered, like some of the personalities involved with the film were with, um, you know, especially the screenwriter um, and, and the risk that was being faced to his career uh over over not naming names over his associations um but i mean ultimately yeah because when he when that was screenplay was written it was there was there was uh, that was kind of based in that that experience that was going on because i mean you know you kind of look at the blacklist kind of starting in the mid to late 40s uh post-world war ii pre-Cold War, uh, this kind of hysteria taking over um, Washington, D.C., seeing communists in the State Department <laughs> or, or perceived communists, the Alger Hiss case, uh, you know, and then also this idea that labor unions that were forming, especially around artists in Hollywood, were somehow, you know, um, infiltrated by communism. Certainly the uh, Certainly, I think the studio heads who had a lot of political power then had a lot of interest in trying to marginalize those folks doing that. So that's where you got all of this, a lot of this. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of Hollywood folks getting uh, called in to 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 say what they allegedly knew <laughs> about communism. But I mean, that was I mean, but that was like I, I think kind of a basis for writing this script, wasn't it? 
Yes, yes, that, that is one of the main reasons Foreman took it on, that yeah. he saw what was happening and, and, and sensed that he eventually would be brought up into it because he had been a member of the Communist Party. Yeah. And they were going to get him eventually. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting. You, you mentioned earlier a little bit about um, the, the impact the film had on you when you were younger and, and the, the attitude of, the, um, of, of Gary Cooper's character. But, I mean, there were a lot of people who found that screenplay to be very almost like anti-Western that it was, it was, it kind of played against that. I mean, um, do, do, do you think that was part of his motivation too, was to challenge that? Or was that just that kind of went along with the territory? No, I, I, I that's an interesting question. Um, I think it was an attempt to revise the western uh, mm-hmm. i'm not going to use revisionist necessarily right but i think it was an attempt to bring it out of the, that the, the townspeople were always right uh, uh <laughs> everything he, he was trying to make bring the western into the 20th century yeah and what's interesting is in virtually all other Westerns, pre and post, as the hero comes to toward the end, the townspeople join him. And then yeah. in high noon, that doesn't happen. He's left alone. Yeah. And he, he's lost everything. Oh. Which is interesting to me, reflecting on this now, when you hear a lot of people talking about how we've lost our sense of community in the United States, social media has, you know, to a certain degree made us less, um, you know, made us less likely to go out and associate with people one on one. Um, But it seems like apparently evidently that we were thinking about that a long time ago, too, or at least some of us were. Yes, yes. And and perhaps it's social media today that has made it so uh, uh, electric the working trying to work with someone from the other side and there was no social media back then right but high noon created an awful lot of uh, uh there was bad publicity about it even while it was being made right and so people did know about it whether when it opened audiences that were a part of that that i i suspect not i think audiences critics might have been aware of it but i suspect audiences went into it and saw a terrific suspense movie yeah they weren't really thinking of the layers yeah well, I loved it because, I mean, you talk about being a, a historian, but you do get a little into like, um, you know, technique in the documentary and, and talking about something that I think you only really think about it subconsciously with movies. You talk about the, you know, how they developed the screenplay with the tracks, with Gary Cooper constantly running or kind of in, mo- in motion and with the clocks. Um, you know, that's something that certainly when I've, I've only seen it a couple of times, but I wasn't consciously aware of that, but it's obviously, it moves that film. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the intercutting Zinneman's use of those three Cooper in motion, as Tim Zinneman said, and the clocks and the tracks. Yeah. It, it, there's a constant reference point to bring the audience Oh, there's the tracks, there's the clock, and there's the hero moving. Yeah. He, he, he was, I think there's one critic talking about how fortunate it was that he had, that Gary Cooper had a way of walking that was not John Wayne uh, shoving him. He didn't use his shoulders 
right. to push himself along. There, there was a grace to the way he moved, but a purpose. Yeah. It, yeah, it certainly wasn't the, it wasn't a stride. No, no, <laughs> no, not at all. It, 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 it was very masculine, but muted somehow. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and kind of, and I kind of interesting that, you know, he got cast in that uh, because I think what what your, um, what your documentary revealed also to me was that it was the insistence of one of the financiers of the film to put him in i mean this guy didn't necessarily sound like a a a movie guy or a film guy where they got this money so how was he so why was he so certain about getting him i mean did that was that anything revealed in your research Uh, he he was a big gary cooper fan he he was a lettuce grower in salinas california yeah a huge gary cooper fan and just thought that he should be that he would be perfect and decide if you want this little independent black and white movie if you want my 250,000 you have to put Cooper in and they had no choice because they had been rejected by everybody every studio everybody yeah but not John Wayne (laughs) John Wayne it's interesting (laughs) all over the internet Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> it's, it's John Wayne turned the role down. Which yeah. I'm not sure where that uh, came from, but I wanted to uh, point it out in the documentary. Yeah, it's all over Wikipedia. Yeah, all over yeah. like IMDb. Yeah. Uh, but it, it it well, it also kind of reminded me. I I was just reading about the um, oh gosh, the the woman who accepted the award, the Oscar for Marlon Brando just passed. Right, the, uh, the woman who just died, yeah. Yeah, um, and there's this whole thing about how she's not really Native American, but one of the stories that that has always been permeated in like mythology was like John Wayne was going to like kill her at the Oscars, and no one really knows where that story came from either. <laughs> oh, right, because in fact, she said in an interview later, he merely said to me, why didn't Marlon Brando come on and say what he you said? He, he, she said he wasn't rude to her or anything backstage. Right. Yeah, there, there seems. I mean, I think certainly think of someone like John Wayne. You've got a lot of mythology that somebody has had an interest in creating. Yeah, about him, uh, including him. You know, turning down High Noon. Um, yeah, and and ultimately. Um, you know, they make this movie. Uh, it's on a tight budget. It's on a tight schedule. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about Stanley Kramer producing it. And I think that was kind of, was that, that was kind of when he was involved with the United Artists, was it not? Or was that before yes. that time? Yeah. And he was hoping that Columbia would pick him up and give him a huge picture deal. Right. I just got done. I read uh, this summer, I, I read the history of the United Artists and I knew kind of a little bit about that period, that trouble, that history, that troubled studio. But I mean, Kramer was, you know, uh, he was a big he was a big proponent of making sort of progressive liberal films. Um, he obviously knew that this could make a political splash. Um, and it's just and it is amazing. I mean, it is amazing to me because, uh, you know. Back then, it was, you know, it seems like with everything going on, it was, um, yeah, it was it was risky for Kramer to do that with everything happening, even for someone who was had the reputation he had. Yes. uh, And he had done Home of the Brave about racial prejudice in the army, the men. Uh, So he he. He was interested in doing films with a political message. Apparently, what happened with this is that as the blacklist got closer to the movie during production, yeah, he was afraid that Columbia would see what is going on here and link him with communist ties. Right. He had never been a member of the Communist Party. So he was trying to protect what he thought would be his entry into big time. Yeah. 
but but certainly he seemed i mean i think his concern was probably pretty valid if he yeah. was talking about racial justice and that sort of thing that's sort of the type of people that that committee targeted right yes yeah and i don't know he always claimed that he did not know even though he had been friends with foreman for 10 years and worked with him that foreman had been a member of the communist party he claimed that and that's the wrong word he he said that Foreman never told him that he had been a member of the Communist Party, mm -hmm. and he was shocked. And he wanted Foreman to go to the committee in a different way, in a private room, and deal with this. And Foreman refused, said, no, I'm going, I've been subpoenaed, I'm going to appear before the committee, and mm -hmm. I'm not going to name names, and I'm not going to take the Fifth Amendment. Right. And Kramer knew that would explode, that would turn high noon, and Kramer's role in it into something that very likely would cause Columbia to say, well, wait a minute, right. we're not going to give you this five-picture deal. Yeah. Well, he was trying, I mean, it seemed like he was trying to protect his art. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think often about, well, I was thinking about this when I was watching your, your documentary, you know, Arthur Miller always like spent a lot of his latter work justifying his testimony in front of the Huac as a preservation of his ability to write. Um, now, he, he didn't do what, I mean, Stanley Kramer didn't do what Arthur Miller did. But, um, I mean, certainly if you were in that time period, it seems like that would be a... I don't know. Do you do you think that I mean, do you think Stanley Kramer was being uh, sort of forthright, forthright with that? Do you think he was being sincere? Do you think he was just worried about I mean, do you, I mean, do you think he had like valid reasons for why why he was so adamant against Foreman's testimony? You know, I, I you read both ends. And, and in fact, I'm perhaps wrong because I'm friends with Jonathan Foreman, Carl Foreman's son, who was in the film documentaries yes. and i've seen all the material that jonathan showed me uh, correspondence and that and it, it's hard for me because i'm angled from a foreman perspective to an extent mm -hmm. and i don't know karen kramer uh stanley kramer's widow claims that Carl Foreman was less than forthcoming to Stanley Kramer. It's interesting. There's a Broadway play of High Noon opening next year. And oh, really? Yeah. And Karen Kramer is, she owns the rights to High Noon, has sold the rights to these Broadway producers. And they're going to call it the Tin Star which was the name of the short story. Right, right. And I'm, not, I'm not sure if that has anything to do with angling away from Carl Foreman's script, because mm -hmm. he owns the rights to a script. Oddly enough, he owns the rights to the short story, too. So right. I, it's, uh, I mean, there was an off-Broadway play of High Noon pre-COVID, but that was done as a spaghetti western. Oh, really? Yeah, no, it, was, <laughs> it, it, it didn't really work. It, but it ran for quite a while off Broadway. But wow, this okay. is not going to be that. Oh, okay. Wow, I didn't know that. I mean, it, it seems like it, I mean, as, as they point out, as they point out in the documentary, it is a film that is of limited scope. Uh, you know, it was, you know, it, it didn't have the vistas and the, uh, panoramas of a lot of westerns at the time so you could you could you could make the argument that could be a easily translated to the stage yes yeah yeah the, the town and the walking and, and that sort of thing yes very much yeah um which again another, another thing that i never really thought about when i was watching it was how um claustrophobic it is and i think that's a, a effectiveness of the film is that you don't think about that because it is just so natural yeah to, yeah, to the story. Fred Zinnemann did an extraordinary job. It just uh, and one of the 
things that's a shame is that there's a critic named Andrew Saris. Yep. Who in the 60s became a golden boy criticism and started within the American film something called the auteure theory. Yeah. Where the director is king, everything. And Fred Zinman was open about saying that High Noon had multiple authors. The script was yeah. done when he moved in. Gary Cooper had a say in things. The cinematographer was necessary. In other words, there were multiple people responsible for its excellence. Yeah. Where Saris's auteure theory posited that it all had to center around the director and the director's responsible for the script. And when you consider the influence that Saris had within film criticism and the academy professors, yeah, High Noon eventually was just decimated among this crowd. And it became, got to a point in the 80s that High Noon was something completely derided that it, it, it's nothing, it's wrong. It, uh, it's not a great Western like mm -hmm. The Searchers or uh, or the Real spaghetti Western. Yes, yeah. Or, or Sierra Leone was it, I mean, definitely considered like the author of those. Yes. His films. Well, that's interesting, you know, because I was kind of thinking about it too. I mean, I, I think it's a it's a great classic movie and I'm a big fan of Westerns and it surprised me when I heard people say that, you know, Western fans weren't fans of this. Right. Uh, do you think it, it had something to do with the whole, um, you know, with the idea of like the big showdown, the big high noon moment, the big gunfight at the end? Do you think that became so overused and cliched that even though like high noon did it as well as anybody else that it kind of got thrown in with all of its um you know the people that kind of aped off of it later uh, it, it it could well be and that certainly happens when something is seminal when, when something right. is unique at of the moment i mean psycho has been yeah so often that I wonder someone coming new to Psycho, if there can be anything about it that, that is fun or uh, shriek or anything. And right. High Noon certainly, to an extent, uh, suffered and perhaps still suffers from that. I, I, and it's hard for me to look at it fresh that way. Yeah. But it's it's possible uh only my daughter and my son when they saw it were just found it absolutely wonderful i uh you know a uh, young girl she's 21 she's uh, at fordham university here in new york and when she saw it fresh she just was amazed at a movie back then would have a mexican woman as yeah. a main character, and not only as a main character, but does not get killed at the end to save the hero. She right. writes off in triumph and uh, is one of the only two people in the town, along with a marshal, who seems to understand that democracy is so fragile that if you don't stand up for it at the moment, you lose it. And yeah. she and the marshal, the only two, and she she was just amazed at his treatment of women way back in uh, back it, then. It does seem pretty progressive for that. Um, but even even you know, you point out um, all of these uses of the term high noon is becoming like a little bit of a cliche. Um, you know, it's high noon for democracy. It's high noon for this. <laughs> like it became it's like a, it became a thing for people. Yeah, yeah, it, it's amazing. You open a newspaper, a magazine, or something, and there it is. I was so surprised when it was high noon for daylight savings time. <laughs> you know, just, uh... Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's pretty. This is pretty funny. 
Uh, but yeah, even like in hearing uh, Clinton, President Clinton's insight into it, um, you know, and kind of that idea of standing, you know, you know, you know, kind of standing your ground, sticking by your guns, going to throw out some other cliches that uh, you could associate with high noon and him that resonating with him. Um, I'm curious, you mentioned something about like, I'd never heard Eisenhower talk about it. Was there any quotes from Eisenhower about why he liked it? Was it for some of the same reasons? Uh, uh, probably the same reasons that the Japanese prime minister in the early 2000s, High Noon was his favorite movie. Mm-hmm. And at some point, he discussed it in front of the entire Japanese parliament and why I knew who is important. And, and I just found that fascinating that this little tiny independent black and white movie yeah. from long ago, the Japanese prime minister. Remember, uh, I don't know if you're too young, but there's something called solidarity in Poland in the 1980s. Mm, yeah. The, the union being formed and a man named Lech Valenza. Yeah, And it was the first time the Polish people were allowed to vote. And they used as their huge poster all over was a picture of Gary Cooper, a photo in High Noon. Wow. And instead of a gun in his hand, he had a ballot. Oh. <laughs> and it's, it's now become... It's in bars, cafes all over Poland, but it's wow. it, it was interesting that this little black and white independent Western is thought of that way around the world. That some uh, uh, a union guy in Poland finds in it a message for freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially since, you know, back then in the 50s, the foreign distribution of of American films wasn't as sophisticated as it is now, not even close. Um, you know, and I mean, even then, you know, like you think about Poland being behind the Iron Curtain, it would have been hard. Yes. To see yeah. that movie, especially because I was reading it. I think the Soviet Union has had derided that movie as being as being about the strength of the individual. Yes, right. It was anti the communism, the, the <laughs> universal, everybody working. Yes, I know. Yeah, which is enormously ironic given that uh, the, the, the communist blacklist and witch hunt had so infiltrated the production of that movie that, you know, the Soviet Union saying it was basically anti communist was very ironic. Yeah, right. uh, <laughs> But but then I guess, you know, anybody can, you know, interpretation is sometimes in the eye of the beholder. Yes, yes, especially high noon. Yeah, so anybody. I kind of want, yeah. No, go ahead. Oh, no, I was kind of wondering, like, I wonder, I mean, do you do you have, an, a, a, you know, any kind of insight into how that became, how foreign audiences got exposed to the movie? No, other than it, it, it might have been because of Gary Cooper. In fact, in 1959, Gary Cooper was part of uh, Voice of America, I think it was. Mm. Okay. Brought half a dozen artists, American artists, to spend weeks in Russia going around and just talking with Russian people. And Cooper was one of them. Uh-huh. And, and he, he was very impressed with the artists and that that he met he, he, mm. he in fact a year later a group of russian artists some of whom he had met in russia were touring america when they got to los angeles he invited them he and his wife invited them to the their house for a dinner and brought in other people from the hollywood community and the next day, Hedda Hopper or Luella Parsons, who were two at that time uh, 
highly powerful uh, gossip columnists mm -hmm. in the Hollywood. And one or the other wrote a column just excoriating Cooper, falling sympathetic to communism and mm. just ripping him. And Maria Cooper told of how her father got on the phone and called Edda Hopper, Lola Parsons, and just ripped her up and down, just ripped her. And she said, then he slammed down the phone. And she said, in those days, you just didn't do that to those two. Oh, they yeah. were so powerful that, and, but then she said, whoever it was, Parsons or Hopper, did not write about it, nor did she write any other columns about Cooper as wow. sympathetic to communism. Wow. Because he was kind of considered a conservative guy for, for an actor. Yeah, he, he was. In fact, he appeared as a friendly witness in 1947, the first day of the hearings. And yeah. while his liberal friends, a director, Henry Hathaway, uh, I think Gene Kelly, told him not to do it, that these were a bunch of grifters, don't. He went there and he didn't name any names, name no scripts, and talked about how he was there just to let them know that. Hollywood was not a nest of communists. It was just right. <laughs> most, but it, it, you know, I, again, I don't know about politics back then, but instinct tells me that being a conservative back then wasn't necessarily being uh, Ted Cruz. <laughs> right. But you would associate with anti-communism, I think. Back then, maybe. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. I, I, and I'm in fact, Cooper was, and he and his best friend Ernest Hemingway argued about that. That uh, Hemingway was not an anti-communist, but they used to argue back and forth about. Cooper would say, "I shouldn't have appeared before the committee, but I will not back away from my feeling that communism is a genuine threat." Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And so, and then, then of course, and I think it was just generally, uh, you know, not just, you know, this talk about communism, but there was like people saying John Wayne included as the movie was going to come out that the film was anti-American. Yeah. Uh, which is, um, which, you know, being removed from it for a while is, is, is tough. Uh, it doesn't seem overtly anti-American to me. I think maybe maybe what he was talking about was like the idea that people weren't inherently good. People wouldn't necessarily stand up for what was considered a, a you know, considered like the bad guys, like the townspeople do there. Uh, I mean, is that what he was talking about? I mean, what what I mean, was yes, it that that. That isn't the way Americans would act. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. Americans, if that were to happen, they'd all get guns and they get up on rooftops and they pick them off. And for all I know, that in fact is what would have happened back in the, the West. Uh, wow. Gary Cooper himself talked about the movie and he said, I have a feeling this is more about today than it was the West that I, like he sure. grew up in Montana and a ranch and his father was a state Supreme Court justice oh. and who, who uh, would talk about, tell Cooper about old cases and that. And Cooper would say, I can't imagine the West that my father talked about that they wouldn't that that they would have been scared yeah so that's interesting you know john wayne might have had a point that right but, but to say that it was un-american or the most un-american movie yeah. ever made uh, uh, and and to do what he did to get rid of Carl Foreman and even boast later in life. I'm, the proudest thing of my life is that I ran Carl Foreman out of America. Mm -hmm. 
mean, uh, that the, the, there's something uh, very disturbing to me about that being something you're powered of. Yeah, it it is, and I, I think about um, how he treated the screenwriter um, Dalton Trumbo. Was that his name? Was that yeah? yeah. Yes. Um, you read about how Wayne handled him, and yeah, it's all pretty. I mean, it was a lot of like you know, tough guy, you know, kind of puffing himself up to be like the character he played in these movies. Which, yeah, also I kind of wondered if he was worried that like, you know, seeing a Western like High Noon was kind of, um, you know, kind of kind of undermining the image he was trying to create of, of Westerns too. Maybe that was what he was worried about. I think that he he did even talk about that, that that, that was undermining the West that he knew and that he was trying to preserve. I, 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 apparently he and Howard Hawks made Rio Bravo, a very popular Western wow. in response to Heinen to say that this is how a real sheriff would act. He, he, he wouldn't uh, go around begging his Hawks, but like a chicken with his head cut off. All right. All right. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh that yeah uh, that was interesting that was that's interesting too well you know you always hear about people saying the best type of film criticism is to if you don't like a movie make a movie <laughs> yes yeah there you are right uh right. that that is that is addressing those concerns so i mean at least he's putting his money where his mouth is i guess um <laughs> and i mean so and obviously um you know i think you know with this coming out now and with you hearing kind of modern politicians talking about it and still talking about it i mean you 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 uh, uh we can you believe that there's modern resonance to watching very, this movie very much uh, I, I find the parallels the democracy is fragile it's words on paper unless citizens stand up and and given my politics i think we're in a very dangerous moment right now mm -hmm. I, I, yeah well i mean it is i mean certainly you you see a lot of it is it is well i mean you look at the people who like let's let's talk about the trump stuff uh <laughs> we might as well talk about it i think our politics are probably pretty similar uh you know you think about of all people cheney was Cheney standing up against Donald Trump is something I don't know about you, but 20 years ago, I would not have fathomed such a situation. <laughs> no, no it, it, it's, it's the sort of thing that Mel Brooks would take and say. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what's funny is The Economist, the British magazine, yeah. two months ago had an article on Liz Cheney and the cover was Liz Cheney as Will Kane in the yep. middle of the street with a hat, mm -hmm. with a Marshall's badge, and ready for guns, and the Republicans as Frank Miller's gang. Yeah, and the article even talked about her as Will Kane. But you're right. It, 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 I've often wondered what her father thinks of this. Well, you know, he did a video. He, he did an ad before her, before she lost her primary. Ad too. Yeah, where he basically talked about Trump being what he thought was an existential threat. Which, I mean, you know, I was kind of a young, uh, you know, liberal guy, full of piss and vinegar, twenty years ago, and I would have said the same thing about Dick Cheney. Probably, <laughs> yes. <you know>? Uh, but I mean, it is amazing. I mean, like it is kind of amazing that um, politics have shifted a lot. Certainly, have shifted a lot in seventy years. But that movie still can act as a compass. Well, I, I, what, what, is, what is especially interesting to me is how the, how the blacklist impacted High Noon. The, mm -hmm. the, the screenwriter was thrown. Nine people in the movie involved in the film were blacklisted including wow. the cinematographer floyd crosby who you're you're probably too young but there's a musician named david crosby oh yeah 
that's Floyd Crosby's son, the cinematographer, who was oh, brought okay. to the movie. And if you ever hear him in interviews talking about John Wayne, who was also responsible for getting Floyd Crosby, or Stanley Kramer, mm -hmm. just, uh, but today when I read about critical race theory mm -hmm. or gay, not gays, LGBT mm -hmm. people and how books are being banned. I'm yeah. Sorry. Books are being banned because of the subject matter yeah. and being removed from libraries or if the school, I mean, there's a movie called Till that's playing around now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Focus on Emmett Till's mother. Yeah. And I was saying to my wife, I wonder if this movie can play in Texas or Florida where they've passed laws say you are not to have anything which criticizes I don't know if it isn't the white race, but it's to make whites feel guilty about who they are or what they are. Yeah, to paint history in any kind of way that it was influenced by racism, which, uh, I mean, if you read any history, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, pretty yeah. obvious that <laughs> racism has been kind of a fundamental issue that we've been dealing with for a while. And I can't, I mean, you know, I mean, I was, I was born and raised in rural Missouri. I mean, I don't really remember a lot about any kind of race being taught in history, but certainly when I got older and started reading stuff like Howard Zen and things like that, I mean, certainly you saw it or like that was maybe I was first exposed to it. Uh, but um, it, it is hard not to think about any part of history and not think about, you know, how we treat uh, people of different races, people of different religions, people of, um, you know, because, you know, again, I mean, you look at the people that were, you know, largely impacted by the blacklist. You had a lot of Jewish folks. Yes. Yes. Who were absolutely thrown into that uh, for, you know, for reasons that, you know, if we're not overtly stated as anti-Semitic, certainly did have those 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 undercurrents beneath it. That, that, that is too rarely discussed when the yeah. blacklist is brought up. The the Jewish that they're going after, a John Garfield and Edward G. Robinson. Right. Yes. Yeah. Dalton Trumbull. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm reading a book about Nixon right now and about talking about the elites who are infiltrating the government. I mean, we all know what that's a code word yeah. for. Yeah. <laughs> yes. 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 Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, so I certainly think that, you know, what, what is amazing is how much time has passed since that film out came out, but then what stays things that we still have to be worried. Yes. About. Yeah. Uh, yes. Very which, which is why, you know, you say that small independent black and white film still resonates. Yeah. Yeah. When, when so many other movies also use the red scare, at mm -hmm. the same time, they go Invasion of the Body Snatchers, yeah. a Western called Johnny Guitar. There were others, but they didn't have the layers, at least to me, mm -hmm. that High Noon had, that Carl Foreman put into the script. Left there as a single one, like Hemingway's uh, Iceberg Theory of Literature, that seven-eighths is beneath the surface. Right. And High right. noon script was that, and Fred Zinnemann was smart enough to just leave it like that. Didn't preach, but High Noon is among is one of the few that still resonates for that reason. Yeah, the, the subtext is so rich. Yeah, there. Yeah, uh, yeah it is. I uh, I haven't watched it in a while. It makes me want to watch it. Um, John, I, you've you've been generous with your time today. I could talk about politics and blacklisting all day with you, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but I would I would encourage anyone listening to this podcast, uh, Inside High Noon. Uh, yes, again, is going to be on uh, is carried by PBS to kind of commemorate this time. Um, 
Is it going to be online? Is it going to be on the PBS? Yes, in fact, app? it's already started streaming. I didn't realize I did a documentary on Elmore Leonard that was on PBS earlier this year. Oh, really? I, oh, okay. I didn't know that PBS had that you could be a member, like as if it was HBO or Netflix, and you you pay whatever it is, ten bucks, yeah. and you can watch all of their shows. I didn't know that. I've and, got it. <laughs> oh well, it's already streaming. I know. Okay. And the documentary and all sorts of stuff on it. Yeah, I did that. I forgot which Ken Burns documentary it was, but I wanted to watch that. And I couldn't keep up with when it was showing. So I just I just got the app and said it might have been a little about country music. Oh, and, yes. Yeah. yeah, I think that yes. was it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's yeah, that's it is. It is just a very oh, it's an incredible library of you could watch it all day if you wanted to. Yes. Yeah. Just uh, yeah, I'm glad I found out about it. Yeah, great. And and John, is there anywhere we can learn about your other work? You mentioned this other work you've done. Do you have any kind of website you want to plug? You know, I'm not really good at talking about myself this way. There is a, <laughs> a, a, a website. I, I I apologize for being uh, uh, evasive here. I, it might be John Mulholland, NYC. Let me, see Let me see if I can find it. Because I think I see, yeah, it's John Mulholland, NYC.com. Okay. That, and I, but yeah, this, this, I've never been on it. So, oh, okay. I was just I on it yesterday when I was getting ready for this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so you can go there and you can learn about your other work. But yeah, the uh, Inside High Noon is on PBS.com. Go check out that app. Uh, John, thank you again. James, thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. Great. Yeah, for me too. And I hope you all enjoyed it listening. If you like what you heard, uh, you know, subscribe to us on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. Leave a review, share this on your social media posts. And on behalf of the film snobs here, I'd like to thank you all for listening. And until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Do not forsake me, oh my darling. On this our wedding day Do not forsake me, oh my darling